I'd like to begin by pointing to a story. Um, on, this, on December 14th last year, um, there was this um, little girl, two-year-old Olive Elian Heligenthal, stopped breathing in her sleep. Her parents were in that position of, of being devastated, of being devastating loss, and they sought hope in God. They asked their church and other believers around the globe to pray for her resurrection. And the next picture will be uh, one of the pictures they shared on social media, where they prayed for resurrection, and they kept praying for resurrection. Um, her parents happened to be worship leaders at a church called Bethel. Um, the next picture? Don't have. All right. Anyways, um, and, and they kept praying, and she, they were saying things like, oh, uh, it's Sunday. Sunday is a good day for resurrection. Day five. Day five is a good day for resurrection. Um, but unfortunately, six days later, on the sixth day, on December 20th, uh, 2019, Bill Johnson, the senior pastor of Bethel Church, issued a press statement saying that, yeah, that, that was them, um, saying that the miracle didn't come. The resurrection that they were hoping for um, didn't happen, and they will proceeding, be proceeding with a memorial service for Olive. Now, I bring this up not to criticize Battle Church. Please hear me. Um, I think too often the first response people give is a lot of hate, and that's one thing I don't want to, to give here. But I want to ask us, for those of us who maybe we're not from the same kind of like um, church tradition as Bethel, I want to ask us, is it wrong for us as believers in Christ to look at death and say, this shouldn't happen? Is it wrong for us to believe that God does something about, that God wants to do something about death and sickness in our lives? Is it wrong for us to believe that God does do something about death and sickness that we face in our lives? I may sound controversial here, but um, I'll address it later in my message. Because we were thinking last week, in, in last week's passage, about death, about the fear of death, about uh, how Jesus has power over the storm previously on Mark. Right? That Jesus showed his power of the storm to deliver his disciples from the fear of death. And he also showed his power over this man possessed by thousands of demons, legion, right? A man living in the midst of death, and Jesus delivered him as well. And that Tim Nichols last week challenged us, will we have fear? Will we respond to him in fear, this power, or will we respond in faith, in trust? And why I bring this up? Because last week's passage and this week's passage are two halves of one narrative of Jesus overcoming death and of Mark, the gospel writer, asking us to have faith in Jesus. Now, what do we see in today's passage? We see two miracles. And how it happens is that the one miracle is kind of like nested in the middle of another one, all right? Yeah. Um, we have one miracle, the one that in between is a symbolic death of this lady who's been bleeding for 12 years. You've read from Leviticus 15 to hear about the complications of being unclean. This, it was meant to symbolize, being unclean meant to symbolize the reality of spiritual death, the contamination of sin upon our lives. It may sound very cruel to people that we have to wash so many times, but the law was meant to show us the seriousness, the death that sin brings, the contamination that sin brings. And this was a woman who was living under that symbolic death for 12 years. 
and within this miracle, or rather, this miracle is put within another miracle of a 12-year-old daughter who was dead. And we'll be going through from top to bottom as we go through, all right? So, but whatever it is, in both these miracles, Mark is calling us to have a radical faith in the Lord and Savior, in Jesus. So let's come to verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. So picking up where we left off last week, Jesus was at a Gentile region on the east, right? And, and he was chased away. They didn't want anything to do with Jesus, right? Maybe they were really pissed that he killed their pigs, right? They must have really loved their suyo. But, right? but they chased Jesus away. So Jesus obviously left the Gentile region, and now he's back in a Jewish region, right? No pigs here. Not halal, right? And, and, and then a great crowd comes to him, and it's obvious it's a Jewish region because of the next verse, because in verse 22, we see that a ruler of the synagogue, okay, the, the Jewish shurao, if you will, Jairus by name, came to him. Now, it's unique that Jairus is named in the gospel. It's not often that when someone comes to, to Christ and be healed and delivered, that we get a name. The only other instance in Mark that we get a name is chapter 10, blind Bartimaeus who is healed. But today it's about Jairus. So what is a ruler of a synagogue? So we, in Malaysia, we don't have any synagogues, right? We don't have a diplomatic tie with Israel. There's no Jews here. We don't see a synagogue here. So I'm, let me unpack this a bit. What is a ruler of a synagogue? He's not a preacher. He's not a priest. He's not a rabbi. But what is he? Jairus is one of those that was given and trusted with the responsibility to keep the synagogue in order. So think of our cathedral, for example. We have the pastoral team, obviously, but we also have so many people in the background working to make sure that uh, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that is, everything's in order, uh, to, cho to choose the songs in the service, to choose the passages in the service. There's, there's members that work in the background tirelessly every week to make sure that we have the beautiful service experience that we have every week. Now, Jairus' duty was to do one of these things. So hence, I believe that Jairus possibly knew of Jesus beforehand. Why? In Mark chapter 1, if you remember, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. And there, Jairus also had the opportunity to witness Jesus' power over the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 1, right? He delivered him. And, Jesus, and Jairus, maybe that's stuck in Jairus' mind. We won't know. But what we do know is that this is a position both um, that the, the religious leaders would choose someone qualified, and he is also locally elected. It means the people chose him. He's recognized by the people as someone trustworthy or someone of respect. And that's who Jairus is. But like I just said, the religious elite chose him. His bosses are the Pharisees and the priests. And obviously, his bosses sided against Jesus, as we've seen in Mark chapter 3. They, they decided that, you know what, this guy's preaching is not something we should follow. He is a heretic, right? So what does it mean for this guy to come and fall at Jesus' feet? Why would he do so? And we see from our next verses, 23 to 24. And we learn another thing about Jairus. We learn that he is a desperate father. He has a little daughter at the point of death. And later on in the passage, we learn she's 12. Now, what does this mean in a Jewish context? When a, Jewish, a Jew, boy or girl, hits the age of 12, it's the age of adulthood. They have their bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvahs, right? They celebrate. And if they were a guy, they would learn the trade of their parents at 12. They're no longer a child. They're, 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 if you will, they're, they're standing at the 
potential of life. For us, you may be someone graduating from college, looking at the big world, finally ready to make a life for themselves. And this was this little girl for Jairus. That he, was, he sees his daughter. She is full of potential. She's waiting for life to happen. But now that seems to be robbed from her. She's at the point of death. And he asked Jesus to come, lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well. That there's no doubt in the outcome in Jairus' mind. That I'm going to go to Jesus and he's going to heal. And if he lays his hand on my daughter, she will be well. And this desperation pushed him to disregard the jeopardy, the danger to his career. And in verse 24, very beautiful. Don't miss the first words of verse 24. What did Jesus do? He went with him. Jairus responded in faith. He gambled, if you will, right? And Jesus followed. Can, I want to I pause for a minute. I want us to put ourselves in Jairus' shoes. Can you imagine yourself? What is it like to, to try to do something, to try to help someone, save someone, or try to solve this problem in your own life? And, and knowing that this particular problem you're trying to solve has a time limit, that time is precious, right? And every solution you try just fails. Like more time gets wasted. More time gets wasted. You try and you fail. You try and you fail. And time is running out. And that was Jairus. And um, I faced this as well, being a father. Now, not many of you have known, I think I shared it um, the last time I was here, but a year, almost a year ago to this very day, my daughter, so this was a picture on um, my, my daughter, the day before the diagnosis, we, she was diagnosed as profoundly deaf, deaf in both ears. Um, and honestly, the next few months were honestly the most trying, storm-filled months. Why? Uh, for my wife and I, because we, we tried to, we were told she needs hearing aids, but she's deaf. Why would she need to wear hearing aids? When, you know, she needs cochlear implants, uh, a level of help even more invasive than just hearing aids. But we're told, no, no, she needs to wear hearing aids and she needs to be wearing them for a, a, a certain duration. And we tried, we tried our best. And um, my wife even took time off work, uh, made her wear it the whole day, the next picture. You will see that um, even when she's sleeping, we had to put it on her. And when we went back to the, the specialist, we were told, oh, it's not good enough. Uh, if, if you give this uh, information to the committee, they will reject your cochlear implant um, request. And we were heartbroken, we were, we were trying. And uh, we were trying to get her well for the operation, and every time it seems as if we we're going to go for the operation, she would fall sick or something would happen, and we would just get pushed back. It was totally out of our control, and we were just in the midst of the storm. So I can imagine what it was like to be for Jairus. But I don't want us to forget what did Jairus do. Jairus fell at the feet of Jesus, and he asked him for help. And he saw that Jesus cares, and he came. So won't we also fall at the feet and ask Jesus for help and see that Jesus does care for us in the midst of what we go through? Okay? I'll share the part two later. But let's move on. <clears throat> because Mark interrupts this story with another situation, another different person. Verse 25. Now, please note, from verse 25 to 30, right, verse 30, right, it's something that happens in an instant. And Mark just gives like a ton of backstory here. So let's dive into it in verse 25. Here we have a woman who had this charge of blood for 12 years. She suffered under many doctors and spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. So suddenly in contrast to, a, to Jairus, a wealthy, well-respected religious figure, a man, 
In contrast to this, we have a poor, destitute woman, declared unclean, rejected uh, by, by virtue of the law, right? And poor because of her condition, having spent all that, even if she was rich to begin with, when we come to her in this story, she's not rich anymore. She has no means. And what does it mean for a woman in the first century Greco-Roman culture to not have any means is almost a death sentence. It's almost a, a sentence to poverty because they, had, don't, they will not have the means to fend for themselves. She won't have the means to work. She won't have the means legal representation. She, people could take advantage of her and she can't do anything about it, being a woman in those days. It's not good. It didn't look good. And we read about, like I alluded to just now in Leviticus 15, right? Now, please hear me. It's not just that it was just women, men as well. There's this, this cleanliness laws applied to both men and women. But I want us to think about how was it for this woman who, to be in 12 years in this situation. And here's where we come to her depreciating shame. Because what do we read in verse 27 to 28? So in verse 27, she hears about Jesus. She comes to him and touches the garment. And what does she tell in her mind? She says to herself, if I touch his garment, if I even touch his garments, I'll be made well. Now, how does Mark know what she's thinking? Well, because later on we know that she tells it herself. But I'm more interested in seeing that, seeing what, uh, what does this inner thoughts tell us? Number one, it tells us that her notions of healing are informed by paganistic superstition that was very common in the Greco-Roman world. We read in the book of Acts that people wanted to touch uh, Paul's work aprons, touch Peter's shadow, that healing is transmitted to a holy person by touch. That her, her notions of healing was informed by not the Bible, but by superstition. But I'm more interested in what, the next, what it could also possibly convey about what she was thinking. We know that she was at the end of a rope. We know that she was desperate. We know that she ran out of options. But what does that do to one's psyche? What does it do to one's self-esteem to be in that condition for 12 years? For 12 years to know, to be repeatedly told that you can't be cured. For 12 years to be told that you're not clean. That you're not just that you're not clean, you make others unclean by virtue of you being there. That you are an inconvenience to everyone around you that others shun you, they reject you, they look down at you, they, must, they will assume, they will naturally assume that you must have done something horrible that God will punish you in this way. That they will judge you, they will marginalize you. To live under such shame for 12 years, and not just that, having been told that enough, we know that not long, you will start believing it too. That she will start be, being defined by her shame. And that's why maybe she was thinking, I won't even bother this important rabbi. I'll just stealthily, just not to inconvenience him, touch his cloak and I'll be made well. Because she didn't think that she was worth his time. Is there any one of us here that has shame in your past or maybe even your presence, presence right now? And sometimes that shame makes you feel not worthy to even lift your eyes to heaven. Maybe something that you've struggled with for so long that this struggle has begun to define you. Now, if that is you, or if you know someone like that, I pray that you don't miss what happens next. In verse 29 to 30, she touches Jesus and immediately she's healed. And, and we see that, well, obviously the disciples don't know what happened. They are as clueless as ever. 
but Jesus knew. And he stops and says, who touched my garments? Now, obviously, Jesus knew, right? From what we know about Jesus, of course, um, he would know. But he still stopped and asked. And his disciples responded, of course, in verse 31. They responded with a legitimate question, right? Everyone, this great crowd, we were, we were reading in, in, in the previous chapters that the crowd almost pushed him to the sea, right? They're pushing against him. You see this great crowd like pressing on you. How can you say, who touched me? The answer is everyone, right? What are you talking about, Jesus? But Jesus insisted, right? Who touched me? Who touched me? And he looked around to see who did it. Now, I pause here to ask, I want us to think, was Jesus cruel for wanting to make this woman sweat it out and put her on the spot? Obviously, she already has, you know, very bad self-esteem. Jesus, why make it worse by, you know, making her come up in front and, 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 and confessing, right? Was Jesus cruel to do that, you think? Imagine, like, asking a, a very introverted, shy person and putting up in front here and said, what happened? Cold sweat and shivers, right? And we read in verse 33, what happened to this woman? She didn't come because of guilt. Verse 33, she knew what happened to her. And here, what happens is that she, re- she was exposed to the raw power, the healing power of Jesus, and she realized suddenly that this is no ordinary man, that he has a power to heal beyond her wildest dreams. So she recognized that and she came in fear and trembling. Like the disciples, when they witnessed Jesus calm the storm, they, were fall, they fell at his feet in fear and trembling. And she told him the whole truth. And Jesus restored her dignity in the next statement. So I want, us, I want to break it down in each one. He said to her, daughter. And she's unique because she's the only one in, uh, in the gospel to be called daughter, in a sense. To be from being one of shame, not worth anyone's time, being an inconvenience, Jesus turns to her and says, you're my daughter. When I, when I go to my kids and I say that, come to daddy, come to me, I want to know that, none, that no trouble that they have is an inconvenience to me. My love to them knows no bounds, no inconvenience and no trouble. That she's, a, she's of the family of God, that she's not rejected, she's not an outcast, that he removed her shame and gave her this dignity in this one word, daughter. But next, he says, your faith has healed you. Or literally, that word in Mark, healed, is also saved. That your faith has saved you. Your faith in me, not in your superstition, not in what you think how it would work, but because you came to me, you're saved. It has saved you. And next he says to her, go in peace. The Hebrew word peace, shalom, is not just salamat, it's not just, uh, like Chinese would say ping an, like everything's okay. The, the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, is richer, is be whole, be complete, no longer be lacking, be well, go in peace. And finally, last but not least, be healed of your disease. That the disease that once defined you, the shame that once captivated you, has no hold on you anymore. And that's that she can't, she, that uh, we read in Leviticus 15, verse 30, that after being clean, they needed to offer a sin offering to, to cover for any, any sins that, that happened in their time. And what Jesus said, be free. It doesn't define you anymore. This shame 
doesn't define you anymore. That when we come to Jesus knowing who He is, we will be healed from our greatest disease, which is sin. I asked you earlier, if any one of you, you have, if you have shame in your life, shame over sin, over failing, over failure time and time again, would you come to Jesus who bore your shame, the extent of your humiliation on his own body, on his own person, and he nailed it to the cross where it deserved, and he plunged it to the depths of hell where it deserved to be, that we might take his perfection that he raised again to glorious life, and then he gives that life to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be a sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. John 1 verse 12 will say, To all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. If you're not a child of God today, are you willing to not be defined by your past, but to, be, to receive God and be defined by His love for you? And if we here, we, we claim the title of sons and daughters of God, but maybe we're not living like it, maybe that reality is a distant reality for us, a distant truth for us, will we come back to our loving Father? And He tells us, son, daughter, your faith coming to me will save you. In me, you will find the peace that surpasses all understanding in me. And when you come to me, you will be released from the captivity of your sin, of your shame, of your struggle that so defined you will no longer define you anymore. We come to Jesus. And we move on because as this beautiful thing was happening to this daughter, being restored and going in peace. Don't forget, Jairus was right there. Uh, verse 35 to 36, while he was still speaking, suddenly there were, there were people from Jairus' house that came and said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? What must it be like for Jairus to have gambled his whole career, his whole reputation, the potential of being sacked from his illustrious career by his bosses, by coming to the feet of Jesus, having Jesus agree, only to be interrupted, only to be delayed, and not just delayed, knowing time is running out, to have people come and tell him that time has run out. It's too little too late. If Jesus was only a human teacher, why trouble him any further? Death is something that none of us can do anything about. <clears throat> but overhearing, verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus turned to Jairus and said, do not fear, only believe. Now, just like how the disciples were tested in the storm, now Jairus' faith would be tested. And for us, what about us? Sometimes when God delays in answering, and sometimes in, in that delay, in the space of that delay, sometimes our situation just gets worse and worse. And Jesus will call us to not fear, but have belief to believe in Him, to have more faith in Him. And what we'll see next, uh, how I'll break it down, will be in the words that Jesus says in this passage. Next, He says, um, he, so he, they, would go, they go to Jairus' house. He only allows us, uh, His closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, to come to Him. 
And there in verse 38, they see this great commotion, people wailing loudly. Now, we don't really do this in our Malaysian context, but that context, right, the death of a person is meant to be mourned. Even a poor, poor man, historical record would tell us, a poor man would be expected to hire two flutists and one lady mourner on the occasion of his wife's death. What more, Jairus, a man of means, a man respected by the community, right, will people uh, be expected to, to hire like, professional mourners to, to, to mourn this? And they already began the weeping process. So that's the noise and the commotion that was going on. They believed that the, the louder the commotion, the more valued um, the person who departed. And definitely, they would not start if they weren't sure she was dead, right? Like, if they're paid to do it, think about it. If they're paid to do it, they won't start until they're sure, like, you know, if, if suddenly, oh, wake up already, ayah, don't get paid already, uh. right? And it seems as if they're shallow because when Jesus says, why are you making this commotion? She's just sleeping. They laugh at him from, <laughs> to be able to switch at that, I mean, their wailing was not sincere, right? They're obviously there uh, for a mercenary intent because they're paid there. But there'll be disbelief in that so Jesus threw them all out, right? Verse 40, he, he threw them all out uh, and he took only the child's father and mother and his three disciples, only five of them, to witness this miracle. But no doubt, one thing without doubt as we go on is that the daughter is dead. She's dead. But what does Jesus say next? Verse 41. Taking by his hand, he says, Talita kumi. Now, a lot of people mistake this um, Mark's usage of the Aramaic here in this passage uh, to, to mean that these, these words have some spiritual power. And indeed, in the case that I, I mentioned earlier about Olive, um, they were just looking at this same passage that we're looking at today, and they were, they were quoting, they were just repeating these words. Talita kumi, little girl, arise. Uh, but there's nothing special, or like a spell or incantation about these words. Mark was simply stating in terms of what, how simply did Jesus say it word for word. He just used two words. That's Mark's intention and he explains it later, right? If it was mystical, he wouldn't even explain the words that he used. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began walking because she was 12 years of age and they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them not to tell, not that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, here's a bit weird. It's like, we obviously know that she died. Everyone knew that she died. And if we see her walking and talking again, right, how can you keep this a secret, right? But rather, this, is, this ties into the secrecy theme of Mark, that we see many people try to justify it, that Jesus does not want um, undue attention before his time, that at the, when the time is right, he would, he would uh, call that attention and then because we know that with a, a, a rise in attention, there's a rise in opposition as well. But anyways, um, what we see here now is important is that, uh, oh yeah, that they give her something to eat. She's not a spirit. She's a body. And technically, technically, this isn't a resurrection. It's a resuscitation. Because she dies, she's raised, and then she dies again. What we think about the resurrection, if we think about it correctly, is that you die, you're raised to never die. Okay? Let's think about that. But um, the faith, what I want to draw is this. The faith of Jairus and the bleeding woman. This, these two accounts of, of faith in the face of death. 
is contrasted in tomorrow, uh, next week's passage about the unbelief that Jesus would, would talk about. But that's not for today. I would rather close out today in our last section, uh, point four of your outline, about trying to define a radical faith in Jesus. And I have four things here. So very quickly, is this. First, radical faith in Jesus is a trusting faith. It's a faith of desperation when you've come to the end and all you can do is just trust Him. Just as Jairus had to acknowledge that none of his status, none of his privilege, none of his, uh, you know, where he came from could save his daughter. Only Jesus could. And just like the bleeding woman, not, not, none of the doctors, none of the religious people could save her. Only Jesus could. So for us to realize that our need for Jesus is such that we need to realize that no one could save us from our situation but Jesus, to fall at his feet and realize how deeply we need him, to come with him with that simple trust. Next is that this faith in Jesus that we require is a tangible faith. What do I mean tangible? Because there's this notion going about, when I, when I tend to talk to, to especially non-Christians, they will say that, I wish I had your faith. The faith to believe despite not having evidence. And here's where I don't think it's true. Because the faith that God will call us to is a faith of trusting someone. Now, here's the thing. Trusting people in our life involves faith. Because even there, there's no way we can exhaustively know about people to guarantee you will not be hurt, to guarantee that they will not cheat you, to guarantee that they will not disappoint you. It takes faith. But why do we still trust people in our lives? Maybe some of you are very cynical, you don't even trust anyone. But, what, but why do we get to the point that we can trust people? It's because we begin to know them. Through our knowing of them and the evidence we see that they're trustworthy, that they care for us, that there's a relationship there, we trust. It's a trust of faith, but it's not a trust without evidence. It's not a trust of blind faith. It's a trust of knowing someone. So just as Jairus was confident, having prior exposure to Jesus, that, he, that Jesus was able to heal his daughter, and just like the woman, she heard reports about Jesus. And even though she entertained notions of superstition, she trusted based on the reports that she heard about this Jesus. Her knowledge was not perfect. So it's not about how much you know, or even knowing rightly. It's not just about, this may sound controversial here in Smack, but it's not just about going for Bible study and going it verse by verse and getting the right interpretation out of the text. It's not about knowing and how much, about how much you know. It's about, do you know the right person and who you know? Do you truly know Jesus and not someone that you imagine in your mind? We must come to a real person. We must come to a real God, that He is real and He's there for us to come to Him. Thirdly, it's a tenacious faith to overcome obstacles. Jairus versus his bosses, the religious establishment, the crowd, his humiliation, the, the news of the death that he needed to keep trusting and not give up. The woman in her desperate situation, no matter what she told her about, her, her about herself, that she sought Jesus out. She must have jostled through the crowds to try to get to Jesus. Maybe crawled between a few legs, I don't know. But she didn't give up. And faith is most clearly seen when it persists and in action. Faith in God does not give up in trusting, in knowing Him more, in face of doubts. It's not to say that there's no doubt, 
but I will not allow this doubt to be an obstacle for me to trust in Jesus. And when it came to my own situation, when, when it seemed that things were out of our control, when it came to my daughter's operation to get uh, cochlear implants, we doubled down. We said, God, we don't know. We don't understand. It's, it's out of our control. It's just so uh, heart-wrenching. We don't know what we're doing, but you do. I don't know why, but God gave us that faith to be able to say, you know what you're doing. And last but not least, we come to the fact that trust in Jesus, faith in Jesus, is a triumphant faith. So I was praying, I'll be honest, I was praying for a miracle. Some part of me at the back of my mind, I was saying, God, maybe you allowed her to have such a diagnosis to show that we have a medical diagnosis of deafness and you would heal her with a miracle and glory be to your name. That you will work this miracle and, and I'll, I'll, I'll be able to tell people about how real you are. I'll tell my non-Christian friends about how real you are and I'll win people to the kingdom for you. That was God's going through in my mind. And I was praying, hoping against hope. And God has been so gracious. You see, God didn't answer my ask for a miracle. Instead, when what I would have asked would have been possible, um, we were planning for one side because it's expensive and because there's a lot of delays involved, there's a lot of government delays involved. We were just planning for just one side and that would be good and maybe later on the second, second year. But because of the delay, the government funding had time to go through. Um, the surgery slot opened up and we were able to do one, at one operation, have both ears implanted. Um, our frustration in dealing with this uh, cochlear implant committee, like knocking against their requirements again and again that they were not realistic for a baby, helped smooth their process. So now whenever there's a baby facing the same situation that we faced, they won't have to go through the same hurdles we had to go through that our heart-worn experience even enabled us to help other parents that God brought to us say that my child needs a cochlear implant. How do I go about funding? How do I go about seeking help? And we were able to help them because when, when we faced it, we, we, were, we were lost. No one helping us. That God worked in such a way that if I would have asked for a miracle and He would have granted it, it would just benefit us in a sense. But God used this to benefit more people than just us, and that He is greater. That when we ask the question, will God always heal completely? The answer is actually yes. So in my case, God didn't heal completely, but He used it for His greater purpose and His greater good for His glory. But what do I mean by He will heal completely? What do I mean by He will do something about death that is final? It's a matter of time, a time frame expectation kind of thing. You see, when I say that God always heal completely, Alzheimer's, uh, dementia, you know, autism, deafness, blindness, will God always heal completely? Yes. Will God heal death completely? Yes. But not in this time frame. Not in this world, maybe. But He will. You see, when it comes to Olive case, what went wrong? I would ask, what is the future that we are really looking forward to? What are we really hoping for? Because our hope should be in the complete healing and restoration at the new creation. 
that any healing that stops short of that is incomplete. So while it is good if God could have restored my daughter's healing, it would not be great because she, there's a chance she'll be spiritually deaf. Then that'll be worse. That she, I would, my hope was for her to have spiritual ears. Not physical, not necessarily just physical. And that we, when we ask and look at death, that we are disturbed by it, we, we pray against it. Yes, by all means, we ask for God for healing. But when we do so, we recognize that even when God answers, glory be to his name, this is an incomplete healing because this is not the end. That we Christians, we hope for something more complete, more enduring, more beautiful at the end of the glory of the world to come. So why do we have radical faith in Jesus? Uh, this is a quote from Chuck Swindle that I'll end with this. He says it this way. Um, why should we have trust in, in God? Because we naturally serve that which we trust. Hoarding wealth is a sign that a person trusts his wealth more than he trusts God. So what's this? It's that we put our faith, in, in, like when, what we put our faith in to save us is where we will devote all our time and energy. And that's why having a radical faith in Jesus matters. Because if we're just hoping for an experience of healing in this life, it terminates here and that ends here. And God wants so much more for us. But if we trust Him, if we trust in Christ, we acknowledge our need for Him. Not a Christ of our own imagining or our own superstition, but as Christ, as He reveals Himself through His Word and His truth. So I would ask us today, how is God calling you in your situation to have this radical trust in Him. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank You, Lord, for this passage and the examples of Jairus and this bleeding woman who trusted You in the face of death. Lord, I, I, I do not know what darkness that the peop your, your people sitting here might be facing. I don't know what pain they may be facing. I do not know what wilderness they may be in right now, but you do. We thank you, Lord, that you don't just ask us to trust in you, that you, you completely end it, that you end our suffering one day. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to come alongside us, to suffer with us, to show that you love us, and to show that you will do something about it. That even as Jesus rose from the dead, that you will raise us from the dead. Where we have not been believing in the power of your resurrection, where we have not been trusting, we have been allowing fears of the current situation in the, around the world to, fear, to, to, to scare us into fear. Help us, O oh Lord, to turn to you. Help us, O oh Lord, to stand on truth. Help us, O oh Lord, to have that radical faith that we so need faith in you and you alone. Release us from this bondage, O oh Lord, and only you can do so. So we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.